our brains not only reward us for being trusted, but also for being trustworthy. We genuinely enjoy behaving in a trustworthy manner. We don't want to breach others' trust. We want to reciprocate, to do right by others. Anyone can be scammed, and you're no exception. Even if you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning and think you know all the tricks, scammers are always one step ahead of you, gathering your personal data, figuring out your weaknesses, and how to tailor their scam just for you. In our last episode, we answered the question of how scammers justify to themselves the crimes they commit. Today, we turn the tables and ask how we can become a mark. Why do we willingly hand over our money? I'm Jim Grinstead, and today we're going to talk about how you can become a con man sucker. There are three weaknesses that allow scammers to rope people in. They are trust, fear, and greed. As you heard from Anna Bockler at a TED Talk in Germany, we are naturally inclined to trust. In fact, we must trust each other for society to function. And as any Wall Street trader will tell you, fear and greed have the power to move financial markets around the world. Fear makes us worry if our armpits smell fresh, if our teeth are white enough, or these days, FOMO, fear of missing out. Greed is more individual. Greed for money is the most obvious, but we may also have a greed for a more powerful position in our careers. Greed to have a better looking yard than our neighbors. Greed for fame and admiration. We all have these qualities in various proportions, but the essential one is trust. Con artists must have your unconditional trust if they are to convince you to willingly hand over your money. Writing for the Office of Fair Trading, academic authors Fisher, Lee, and Evans wrote that our ideas about who makes a good sucker are mistaken. Here's A.I. Kevin reading from the article a list of motivators the authors believe are important in cultivating a mark. It was striking how some scam victims kept their decision to respond private and avoided speaking about it with family members or friends. It was almost as if with some part of their minds, they knew that what they were doing was unwise, and they feared the confirmation of another person. Indeed, to some extent, they hide their response to the scam from their more rational selves. Another counterintuitive finding is that scam victims often have better than average background knowledge in the area of the scam content. For example, it seems that people with experience of playing legitimate prize draws or lotteries are more likely to fall for a scam in this area than people with less knowledge and experience in this field. This also applies to those with some knowledge of investments. Such knowledge can increase rather than decrease the risk of becoming a victim. Nor did we expect to find that scam victims report that they put more cognitive effort into analyzing scam content than non-victims. This contradicts the intuitive suggestion that people fall victim to scams because they invest too little cognitive energy in investigating their content. 
and thus overlook potential information that might betray the scam. This may, however, reflect the victim being drawn into the scam, whilst non-victims include many people who discard scams without giving them a second glance. From the victim interviews, it was clear that some people viewed responding to a scam as taking a long-odds gamble. They recognized that there was something wrong with the offer, but the size of the possible prize or reward relative to the initial outlay induced them to give it a try on the off chance that it might be genuine. Trust, fear, and greed. Those are the things that draw us into scams. So let's take a closer look. We'll begin with trust. As I noted before, con artists create an imaginary world for their suckers that makes sense to them, but it would be dismissed by other people. Trust is what first draws them into that world, for without it, greed and fear could not be cultivated. The world cannot function without trust. We trust that the pump at the gasoline station is accurate, that other drivers will follow the rules of the road, or that pilots know how to fly the plane and are sober enough to do it. We're inclined to trust because we must. Given that trust is so central to human life, you would hope, you would like to think that we really understand how it works, that we can make really good decisions about who we should trust or whether we're going to be trustworthy ourselves. But I'm here to tell you we're not really good about that. And until recently, the science underlying that hasn't been really good about it. And so in some ways, that's what led me to, to write this book. As a scientist, I really wanted to work on correcting a lot of the misconceptions that are out there to empower people to make better decisions but also so that we can kind of work together to nudge us all, to nudge society, to become more trustworthy and cooperative overall. That's author David Destino from a talk he made at Google. He explains that our judgments about who to trust aren't as good as we may think. If you actually look at the scientific data, it doesn't really hold up. What we've learned over the past decade, especially in psychological science, is that people's moral behavior is a lot more variable than any of us would have expected, and it's a lot more influenced by the situation. And so if you want to control your own behavior and predict the behavior of those around you, you need to realize that it's not a stable trait. You need to understand how it's affected by the situation. Your mind, whether you know it or not, is weighing two types of costs. It's weighing costs and benefits in the short term versus costs and benefits in the long term. And those usually correlate with kind of what's good for me in an expedient fashion right now versus what's good for me to do even, even if it costs me a moment to kind of build a reputation and to build social bonds in the long term. And depending upon the situation, which decision you choose can change from moment to moment. And you can think about it. If, if, if my friend Ming loans me money in the moment, if I don't pay him back, well, I'm ahead. I've profited in the short term. But long-term, it's probably a poor decision because he's not going to give me money again, and I'm going to get a reputation as being a cheater. But if I can get away with it, my mind, unbeknownst to me, and my own moral codes that I endorse, will try to push me to be a bit untrustworthy. A great example of this is the pigeon drop. In this age-old scam, the mark finds a great sum of money. She thinks, finders keepers. But someone else has noted and asked what's inside the bag. She feels the need to be honest, so she shows what she's found to the con artist. He suggests splitting the money 50-50. She thinks that sounds fair. After all, how could she choose otherwise? But then a second con artist shows up, and he has overheard the conversation. 
He says he has a friend who's a lawyer, and the lawyer says all they have to do is hold the money for 30 days, and if no one claims it, they can split it three ways. Once again, she must accept as now there are three people who know the secret. The question becomes, who will hold the money? These three strangers don't know if they can trust one another. Then one of the con artists has an idea. What if the mark keeps the money, but draws $6,000 from her own bank account and splits it between the other two? Since they already have counted the money and she knows there's $25,000 in the bag, she knows she's safe, and at worst she'd be losing $6,000, keeping the remaining $19,000. No one is likely to squeal as they're already doing something shady. The three go to the bank. She withdraws the $6,000, divides it with the other two, and the con artists walk out of the bank. She opens the bag to make the deposit and finds nothing but cut-up newspaper bundles. They switch the bag on her. The con artists are $6,000 richer, and the sucker is left with nothing. And she can't go to the police because she was part of a plan to steal someone else's money. Her trust was misplaced, and it cost her $6,000. Greed was also involved, so let's move on to that second way of becoming a con artist sucker. Bernie Madoff traded on the greed of the powerful, people who already had a lot of money. Charles Ponzi used greed to draw in new customers to make good on promises he'd made to prior customers. Like all such schemes, they're destined to fail. All the con artist needs to do is judge when his time is up and skip town before it all comes crashing down. There's another name we need to add to that list. Richard Mangone. He's an admitted self-centered jerk, consumed by greed. He'd become one of the nation's most successful credit union CEOs. But on September 12, 1995, he was sentenced to 24 years in prison for orchestrating a huge credit union real estate fraud scheme, costing the credit union more than $45 million. When he got out of prison, he was broke. So he did what any self-respecting con artist would do. He wrote a book about it. Banking giant Wells Fargo has also repeatedly proven itself to be selfish. Here's NBC News. The country's fourth largest bank, Wells Fargo, is paying up, agreeing to a $3 billion settlement with the Justice Department and the SEC after employees under pressure to meet sales goals created millions of fraudulent bank accounts between 2002 and 2016. Simply put, Wells Fargo traded its hard-earned reputation for short-term profits and harmed untold numbers of customers along the way. According to authorities, inside Wells Fargo, employees called it gaming, forging customer signatures, creating pins to activate unauthorized debit cards, and moving money to unauthorized accounts. I had 15 accounts at once. It was just very frustrating. 
And these are accounts I never opened. But according to officials, none of the $3 billion penalty will go back to defrauded customers. In a statement today, Wells Fargo's new CEO called the bank's past conduct reprehensible and wholly inconsistent with its values and promised to ensure that nothing like this happens again. But tonight's fine does not clear individual executives from further investigation. And the Federal Reserve continues to ban Wells Fargo from growing any bigger until it's reorganized the company to prevent this abuse from repeating itself. This wasn't Wells Fargo's first tangle with the law. It had been repeatedly involved in insider trading, discrimination against black customers, violating credit card laws, charging excessive fees, and not disclosing investment risks, among other things. Did they clean up their act? Not a chance. In 2016, the bank paid $50 million to settle allegations of overcharging hundreds of thousands of homeowners for appraisals ordered after they defaulted on their mortgage loans. Now, banks are allowed to charge homeowners for such appraisals, but Wells Fargo frequently charged homeowners fees of $95 to $125 on appraisals for which the bank had been charged $50 or less. It was charged with failing to comply with document security practices and paid a $5.5 million fine. The bank reportedly discriminated against female employees and convinced borrowers to buy auto insurance they didn't need. Oh, and in 2018 the company discovered that its business banking group had improperly altered documents about business clients in 2017 and early 2018. Oopsie! Then there's a new kind of scam, one that involves artificial intelligence. Here's Jennifer DiSafano before a Senate investigating committee. January 20th was a typical Friday afternoon for our family kicking off a weekend of races and rehearsals. My husband was with our older daughter, Bree, training for a ski race, and I was with my younger daughter, Aubrey, uh, picking her up from re a rehearsal at dance. At about 4.53 p.m., I received a call from an unknown number. At the final ring, I chose to answer it, as unknown calls we're very familiar with can often be a hospital or a doctor. It was Brianna sobbing and crying, saying, Mom? At first, I thought nothing of it and casually asked her what happened. Brianna continued with, Mom, I messed up, crying and sobbing continually. Not thinking twice, I asked her again, okay, what happened? Suddenly a man's voice barked at her, lay down, put your head back. At that moment, I started to panic. My concern escalated as I demanded to know what was going on, but nothing could have prepared me for her response that she gave me next. Mom, these bad men have me. Help me, help me, help me. She begged and pleaded as the phone was taken from her. A threatening and vulgar man took the call over. Listen here, I have your daughter. You call anybody, you call the police. I'm going to pop her stomach so full of drugs, I'm going to have my way with her. I'm going to drop her in Mexico and you'll never see your daughter again. Fear doesn't get much more real than that. The next few minutes were every parent's worst nightmare. I was fortunate to have a couple of moms there who knew me well, and they instantly went to action. One mom ran outside and called 911. My younger daughter, Aubrey, was standing there listening to all the vulgar threats this man was making that he was going to do to her sister. I needed her help and asked her to start calling her dad, call her brothers, call anybody. We have to find her sister. She stood there paralyzed in fear. The second mom ran to Aubrey's aid and started making calls to her dad. The kid never demanded a million dollars. That was not possible. So then he decided on $50,000 in cash. That was when the first mom came back in and told me that 911 is very familiar with an AI scam where they can use someone's voice. But I didn't process that. It wasn't just her voice. It was her cries. It was her sobs. It was just not her voice. 
She said okay and left. I continued with the negotiations for the ransom. I asked them for wiring instructions, routing numbers, but they refused. Instead, they required me to get in a van with a bag over my head with $50,000 in cash to be transported to my daughter. If I didn't have all the money, then we were both going to be dead. I was shocked. At that point in time, the second mom came back to me, and she had located my husband, who had found Bree resting safely in bed. She came to me and told me that Brianna was safe, but I did not believe her because I had just spoken to my daughter and I was very sure of her voice and I was very sure of her cries. So I demanded to talk to my daughter. Brianna got on the phone and she had no idea what was going on and she kept reassuring me that she was safe. I asked her so many times, are you sure? Are you sure you're safe? Are you sure you're with dad? I I spoke to you. How can you be in both places at once? I asked her over and over again. My mind was whirling. When I finally had the reassurance I needed, I knew she was safe and I was furious. I lashed at the men for the horrible attempt to scam and extort money. They continued to threaten to kill Bree. I called the police to pursue the matter, and unfortunately I was met with it was a prank call, that it happens often, and that there's nothing that can be done, and that I probably am not in harm's way, but it's not a guarantee. They offered to have a police officer contact me, again from an unknown number, as authorities are calling from blocked numbers, but that's all they could offer. That certainly did not make me feel better. The bottom line was no actual crime had been committed, So no physical kidnapping had taken place and no money had transferred, period, the end. Trust, greed, and fear. The three motivators that turn us into suckers for a con artist. This scam required that Jennifer have trust that the voice on the phone was her daughter. The scammers created that illusion by artificially imitating her daughter's voice. Greed was not a factor because the power of fear was overwhelming. Now, I'm not about to tell you to abandon trust so you can protect yourself from predators. I will suggest that you become skeptical. Step back. Ask yourself if this is or could be real. Why should I believe the stranger is trustworthy in a situation that's already a bit sketchy? And consider if the fear is justified. Is it reasonable that someone would kidnap someone you love out of the blue, not knowing whether you could lay your hands on a large sum of money or not? Set that fear aside for a moment and ask yourself, does this make sense? There's a phrase taught to new scuba divers to remember in case they find themselves in trouble beneath the waves. It's the three R's. Regain control, respond, and react. Regaining control means setting aside your fear. Respond is to assess the situation and decide on the best course of action. Finally, react is to put that plan into motion. If you find yourself in a situation where you question trustworthiness, are motivated by greed, or paralyzed by fear, remember those three R's. Regain control, respond, and react. The ability to think clearly is one of the best ways to avoid being a sucker. If you enjoy the podcast, Please help us out by telling your friends and encouraging them to listen. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scamsandcons.com. This podcast is an independent one-person production. If you'd like to support the program, please go to scamsandcons.com and make a pledge of as little as $3 a month. It helps cover the cost of new episodes, and that's greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 
of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.